you for all you for this morning that we can gather together with uh, our friends and our family and other believers, Lord. Be with Ben this morning as he brings us your message, Lord. Open up our hearts to hear it and to, to go out into the world today, uh, a better place and a better follower of you, and, and help us to reach out to those that we encounter this week, Lord. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Tanner, for leading us in worship. First uh, Corinthians is where we're going to be. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn there. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1 Corinthians, right there early on in the New Testament. We have an argument that's been taking place at our house, and it needs to be settled, and so I thought the place to do that would be from up here when Morgan can't get a hold of me. Every time we want to eat somewhere in Snyder, there's this, we, we've been married long enough, we know where each other doesn't like to eat. I like to eat at good restaurants like Long John Silver's and Arby's, amen? Morgan doesn't. Uh, she likes bad restaurants like Golden Chick. And we have this argument, and it's not that I don't like Golden Chick. I like chicken just fine. Fried chicken is great. But they're just mean. Um, over and over. I've had bad experience after bad experience. They tried to charge us for a kid's water one time. And I was like, well, just drink from the water hose outside that's been running since this place has been built. But I digress. Every time. I mean, this is like every time we decide to eat in town, Morgan's like, let's eat a golden chick. And I'm like, you know I can't ethically, morally, spiritually eat it, golden chick. And so we have this, this argument that takes place in our life. The reason why is because Morgan really likes the sandwich that they have. That's it, uh, which is great. That may seem odd, right? I'm not a fan of golden chick. I have morals and values, so that's why I don't like golden chick. You may not have morals and values. That's why you do like golden chick. It's your choice. But there are these places in our lives, and I have my own, but I felt like that was better to say than my own that you love, even though they can be rude, even though they mess up, even though they fail, even though that cause you all sorts of pain and all sorts of frustration. All of these things can take place, but we all have these things in our lives that despite all of that, we just love these places for whatever reasons. That's Paul with Corinth. Absolutely loves this place. Um, and, and we'll walk through his relationship with this church and with this city but man alive, do they have problems. And we'll walk through. I mean, we're going to go verse by verse and book by book through this. And we, we haven't had to do it since Genesis. But there's a few chapters when we get in here that we'll <laughs> figure out something for the kids. Because it's going to be PG-13 with some of the things that Paul brings up in here. But we're going to walk through them because it's important for us. It's helpful. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to get all the way through three verses today. <laughs> Lord willing. Uh, and then we'll just keep trucking along. So let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This is verse 1 through 3. Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with those in every place who call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for today. I thank you for this, this letter that you've given us from Paul to the church at Corinth and their relationship that's just wrapped up in it that you can see as we flip through the pages and read through it. God, I thank you for unconditional love. 
it often doesn't make sense to the receiver or to the one who's giving it. We thank you for grace. Something that we cannot earn, something that we can only receive. God, we thank you for peace that flows from that grace. And not just peace with one another, but peace with you, God. God, I'm thankful that then in the midst of our sin, in the midst of us being sinners, you can call us saints as well. And that your gospel is that powerful. I pray as we walk through these three verses of scripture, you would soften our hearts, encourage us where we need encouragement, give us conviction where we need conviction, and help us to grow in you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the first thing we see when we read uh, verse 1 again, Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother. So this is the apostle Paul as we've come to know him. We haven't walked through a, a letter of Paul's in a while, so if you have your Bibles and you flip to Acts chapter 9, this is where uh, the apostle Paul kind of gets going. He was a persecutor of the church. He held the coats for the very first like persecution that takes place uh, with, with uh, the deacon, and so... Um, you have Paul who's being commissioned to go and arrest Christians, to go and to kill Christians. This man is, is by all means somebody that we would not want to be acquaintances with at this time. Yet we see in Acts chapter 9 something incredible that the Lord does with Paul. Uh, so this is Acts 9 verse 1. Now Saul, that's Paul, Paul Saul, was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And he went to the high priest and requested letters from him to the synagogue in Damascus. So that if he found any women or men who belonged to the way, that's Christianity, the way, he might bring them as prisoners to Jerusalem. And as he traveled, he was nearing Damascus, and a light from heaven suddenly flashed around him. And falling on the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul said. I am Jesus, the one you are persecuting. And he replied, But get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. And so the men were traveling with him, stood speechless, hearing the sound, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And they took him by the hand, led him into Damascus, and he was unable to see for three days, and he did not eat or drink. So we have this man, Saul, who gets permission. He's a Jew, and he's a very smart Jew, very intellectual, was discipled under some of the best and the brightest minds in Jewish society. And Paul will tell you that in Philippians, which we, we read through a few uh, months ago now. Um, but Paul gets a request to go persecute the Christians, to go arrest these Christians, these men and these women who belong to the way. And so he's going to Damascus to do this. And there's several things I want us to see here because it's important when we get to Corinthians. The light flashes around him. He, he can't see anything at all. And he hears a voice, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And we come to find out this is Jesus talking to Paul, Saul. But who had Paul been persecuting? Paul was not involved in the crucifixion of Jesus physically, right? His sin certainly was a part of it. Paul had been persecuting Christians, people who belonged to the way. And so what Jesus is doing is he is identifying with his people so much so that if you persecute a Christian, you're persecuting Christ himself. And then we see that he's speechless. He could hear, but he could not see. And so they take him to Damascus. He's there for three days. And then there's a guy named Ananias who the Lord goes to. And he must be a faithful brother because God says, I want you to go share the gospel with Saul. And he goes, I know who Saul is. I'm out. 
God says, no, you're going to go share the gospel with Saul, and he's going to repent, and he's going to believe in Jesus, and he's going to do mighty things. That's who's writing this letter to the Corinthians. It's not somebody who's innocent. It's not somebody who's perfect. It's somebody who has a past. It's somebody who has done things that he is absolutely ashamed of. But how does Paul say it? Paul says, called an apostle of Jesus Christ by God's will. Call there means, and by God's will is showing us, like Paul, what was Paul's choice there? God said, you're going to be my disciple. And Paul said, if you're this powerful to shake somebody and twist them, like a 360, not 360, 180, do a 180 within your life to go from persecuting Christians, arresting them, putting them in Jerusalem, possibly killing Christians, to all of a sudden being outspoken and defending them, being a, a huge proponent for the early church. Like there must be something true there. And so Paul calls himself an apostle, and he does so for several reasons. He's dealing with a hard-headed church. He's dealing with a church that he needs to set his authority down a little bit. Now, the word apostle means sent ones. So in one sense, all of us, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, are apostles. We're sent by the Lord. But in another sense, there's this class of apostles that's the twelve. Those who saw Jesus Christ, capital A apostles, who spoke the inerrant word, who wrote letters. Uh, I, I took... Uh, New Testament with a bunch of elementary school teachers that were going to be elementary school teachers. So I have like a rhyme that I could do all the 12 apostles with. I won't brag and show it to you, but just know that I can do it. So you have all the apostles. You have Paul, and Paul's saying, I'm an apostle. As a way of saying, I love you, I'm sent for you, I'm here for you. But also, there's this authority with which I'm about to write with. You need to listen to what I say. He mentions a man's name, Sosthenes, our brother is what he calls him. He doesn't call him an apostle. He calls him a brother. He probably was the secretary who pinned, like had Paul would say it, and he would pin it and write it down, or, or he could be somebody else. But we know by saying he's a brother means he's, he's a believer, he's a Christian. And we'll get into his story in just a minute. So we have the apostle Paul writing to this church that he loves. He's laying down his authority, saying, I'm an apostle for the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to listen to what I say. Verse 2. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints with those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and uh, both their Lord and ours. Corinth. Uh, was was a rough <laughs> place. Think New York City plus Los Angeles plus Las Vegas and just throw them all together, and that's the city of Corinth. It's in southern Greece, and what ended up happening is Corinth was a prominent and a very wealthy city. There were two ports within the city. Most cities were doing great with one, but Corinth had two. And the way that you would sail is if you're trying to get to the other side, it was very dangerous to sail around the edge of Greece. And so what these sailors would do is they would pull into one of the ports. If their boats were small enough, they would physically pick them up, and there was a road, and they would move them five miles to the other side of Corinth and then set sail off. Or if they didn't want to do that, they'd haul the cargo that way. Or if it was a passenger ship, a lot of times they would pull into one port, and they'd say, just walk over there. There'll be a ship that'll take you. They had a lot of money because of this business. Both ways going through this, it was safer, it was prominent. So by the time Paul gets there, there's probably around 100,000 people in this city that live there. 
And then there's all sorts of foot traffic. It reminds me a lot of Lubbock. Like you have the population of Lubbock, but then if there's graduations going on at Tech, that population booms and it's just miserable. The Isthmian Games took place in Corinth. So you have the Olympics, right? We've heard of the Olympics. Everybody with me? The Isthmian Games were compatible to the Olympics. It took place every two years and they would compete. There was a, a temple to Poseidon and a temple to Aphrodite that sat 1,800 feet up in a, like on a mountain. So when you would walk into Corinth, that's the first thing that you would see was this temple. And you could go worship with the, the prophets there. There were around 1,000 of them. There were two theaters in this town. One of the theaters had 18,000 seats. Like we put in a microphone system for 100 people. 18,000 seats in one of these ancient cities. It was very urban. It was growing very rapidly. It was destroyed. It was destroyed in 146 BC by the Romans because they didn't. They were Greek, right? This is southern Greece. They were not Romans, and so they fought the Romans. And the Romans said, "We'll just flatline you," and so they leveled them. But in 46 BC, 44 BC, Julius Caesar rebuilt the city, and so when Paul comes to the city at about 50, 80, it's almost been a hundred years since then. They don't have a big past. They're looking forward to the present. It's every bit as much of a metropolitan urban kind of society, lots of money, lots of wealth, lots of labradoodles all running around this little city. Snuck that labradoodle in there, nothing? All right. And so this is the place that Paul goes to plant this church. And Paul often does this. He gets big urban centers that he'll plant these churches in because gospel, the gospel can spread further through those big cities. So he says to the church of God at Corinth, if you'll flip to Acts chapter 18, Luke, when he's writing Acts, records how Paul plants this church. This is Luke's chapter 18, verse 1. After this, he, that's Paul, left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. And Paul came to them, since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade. And he stayed with them and he worked and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and he tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Right, so just Paul shows up at Corinth, he meets Priscilla and Aquila, he, they're all tent makers, so they get in this business together. There's a little bit of nuance. Priscilla and Aquila may have been leathersmiths, but, but there's, they're all doing this business together and then every Sabbath Paul's going to go and preach in the, the, tabern, or the, the uh, synagogue. So when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified uh, to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. Right, so Silas and Timothy show up. They start working, which frees Paul up. Instead of working 9 to 5 Monday through Friday, he's now free to go and preach all day long every day. And so he goes and does so. And look at the response. When they uh, resisted and blasphemed, he shook off his clothes and he told them, Your blood is on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And so he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole house, and many Corinthians, when they heard, believed, and were baptized. Sometimes the pettiness of people just makes me laugh, right? Paul gets mad at the synagogue. He's like, y'all aren't listening to it? Fine, I will leave. I'm going to go a long ways away right next door. 
And he begins preaching the gospel right next door to the synagogue. I have a story about my grandma with some of this stuff, but we'll save it for later. Right next door to the synagogue, he begins preaching. And people hear the gospel, they believe, and they're saved, including Crispus, who is the leader of the synagogue. Verse 9, so the Lord said to Paul one night, Don't be afraid, but keep on speaking. Don't be silent, for I am with you. And no one will lay a hand on you and hurt you, because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half, teaching the word of God among them. When Galileo, a proconsul of Achaia, and the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal, uh, the man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. And as Paul was about to open his mouth, Galileo said to the Jews, If this were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourself. I refuse to be a judge on such things. So he drove them from the tribunal. So they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Galileo. So we see God tell Paul, keep preaching. I'll protect you, keep preaching. And Paul does, and immediately what happens is he gets brought before the Roman court. And before Paul can speak, which I don't know Paul, I know him from the word, right? but must have been pretty quick. Paul's a preacher. I imagine he struggles to keep his mouth shut. Before he can speak, the leader goes, this is a a matter for y'all to deal with, not for me to deal with. So they kick him out. And then did you see who they beat? Sosthenes. Look at 1 Corinthians 1. 1. Who is the brother that Paul talks about? Sosthenes. So it's probably the same guy. It may not be. We don't have his, his last name or his middle name or his social security number or any of those things. But what it looks like is if that man was a leader of the synagogue and the synagogue beat him and betrayed him and those who were there to minister to him, those who were there to care for him were the Christians that took him in, and remember, they're right next door. And he becomes a believer now and is writing this letter with the Apostle Paul. And so they plant this church in Corinth. And it grows, uh, probably up to around 100 people in this little congregation in this city of these gathered believers that, that Paul has. And Paul says that you've been sanctified in Christ Jesus. So there's, that's a big theology term, but it's an important one for us, right? With a, The moment we become believers in Jesus Christ, the moment we're saved, the moment we repent of our sin, we turn to Jesus Christ in faith and belief, we are justified before God. It's a legal term. It's like God is hammering down his gavel, and he says, I declare you innocent. I declare you not guilty. At that moment where believers were saved, and justification means to be made holy. We're counted as holy before God. Now, the rest of our lives are spent sanctified, which means to be made holy. So we have this moment with justification, and the rest of our lives is this sanctification that we continue to grow and to grow and to grow in the Lord more and more and being shaped like him. And so Paul, to this city, this pagan city with all sorts of these things going on, says, you're sanctified in Christ Jesus, meaning you're already believers, this church doesn't have unbelievers. It's your believers in Jesus Christ if you're gathered here and you're growing in Jesus Christ, called as saints. 
This doesn't mean people are saying, look at those saints. I'm going to call them a saint, like a name. And this is the same kind of call Paul says when he was called to be an apostle. That God saved them, and now they're saints. And so they call in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul does an interesting thing, right? He says, not just you guys, though. It's like the Corinthians thought they were the only Christians in the entire world. Paul says, not just you. All believers have this happen to them. There's not, you're not special in this. All believers in all of the churches, right? You have your, your local church, this is taking place, but then you have this universal church, which is all believers, past, present, and future, that belong to this universal church that are in this body of Jesus Christ. All of us call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, and we're being sanctified. This isn't a special set-aside thing for the Corinthians. This is for all Christians, past, present, and future. Even for us right now, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're being sanctified, and we call on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord. It's interesting, right? This isn't written to the pastors of First Baptist Church Corinth. Paul doesn't say to the deacons at the Church of Corinth. He doesn't say to the personnel committee. He doesn't say to whoever runs this church, listen. What does Paul say? To the church. It's all the believers together. All the believers lead. This is why we believe in congregational autonomy here. That all of us are responsible for the church. Verse 3. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul often begins his letters with this grace and peace to you. Grace is unmerited favor. It's a gift that cannot be earned. It must be received. You, to earn grace is called justice. You get what you deserve. That's not grace. But when we receive the grace of Jesus Christ, what that leads to is peace. And Paul says specifically peace uh, from God our Father. And it's peace with God our Father and Jesus. So we have two of the three uh, persons of the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and then what we'll learn about in Corinthians. And one of the reasons I'm excited to walk through Corinthians is there's a whole lot of the Holy Spirit in Corinthians too, and we can understand who he is and what he, who he isn't. So again, we get this triune identity. Grace comes from God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Now here's what just has been racking my mind this whole week. If you just read the first three verses, it sounds like the church at Corinth had it going on. But if you start looking at the rest of the letter, you go, oh my goodness. Paul called these people saints? Paul says these people are being sanctified? I mean, one of them, there's two church discipline passages in the Bible we cling to. Jesus says one in Matthew, and then there's one in 1 Corinthians, and it's a church discipline because a man is sleeping with his stepmom. Paul calls them saints. You have divisions. You have, like, we'll, we'll get into it, but there's people who have, like, made these factions. I guess they probably it was their Sunday school classes. We like our Sunday school teacher. We like our Sunday school teacher. So they have all their teachers lined up. Some people are like, we like Paul. And they're, like, winking at Paul through the letter. And then there's other people who are like, well, we like Peter. You know, Peter, he was walking with Jesus. And others are like, well, we like Apollos. He's one of us, and he came and he stayed. And there's others who are like, well, we like Jesus, the Jesus juke card with the teachers. There's all of these divisions that are taking place within this church. There's immorality at every single turn. 
there's a lack of wisdom, there's lawsuits. These believers are getting mad at one another, and they're affluent, and so they just sue one another within the church. There's frivolous divorce taking place. There's idolatry. People were getting drunk at the Lord's Supper table. There's an abuse of spiritual gifts. Paul goes on a long list of what spiritual gifts are because they were being abused. There's disorderly worship services, just massive chaos. You would gather up at the church and just be chaos that was taking place. There's a rejection of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. All of that's in Corinth that Paul tells us about. And he calls them saints. There are other words we can use, right? Saints. See, what, 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 what happened was Paul plants the church in Acts 18, and he leaves. And they have problems, and they're trying to figure these things out, and they don't have bylaws set up to help them work through these things. And so they're trying to sort out what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to do. And so somewhere in there, they write a letter to Paul saying, help us with these things. And Paul writes back to them. We don't have that letter. This is 2 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians is somewhere else. There were reports that Paul was hearing. A lot of when he writes 1 Corinthians, he's in Ephesus, and so he's not that far away. He's hearing these reports about what's going on in the church. And it's not good reports. Nobody's going, it's a healthy church. They're doing great, great things. But it's a church that Paul loves. And he loves them as a father, and he loves them as an apostle, and he loves them as somebody who wants them to succeed, wants what's best for them. And so he puts down a stern foot throughout the letter and guides them theologically through what they're supposed to believe and what they're not supposed to believe. Because what the Corinthians are wrestling with are what you and I often wrestle with. We believe in the gospel. We believe in Jesus Christ. We hold to all of these things with a closed fist. But sometimes when we walk through life, how those things play out in our lives is hard to figure out. What does it mean to say, I love my neighbor, and then treat somebody as your neighbor when they are doing something immoral? What does it mean to love one another within the church when somebody within the church sues you? What does it mean to take the Lord's Supper and, and not be drunk? Like, is There's all of these questions that this early church is dealing with, and I think what we see with Paul is there's this authority, this frustration because they've made some bad decisions, but there's also this love because it's just an immature church who's trying to do its best. And it's an important truth for you and I. So hear me. If you're human in your life, which I assume most of you are, we are inherently sinners. We're born with this. And we really have no desire to leave it, if we're honest. But because of the love of Jesus Christ, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we repent of our sin, we turn to Jesus. But here's the truth that we cling to, right? We don't stop sinning, do we? We still continue to sin. We still to continue to wrestle with this indwelling sin. It's something that takes place. Now, we're sanctified. We're growing, right? The longer you're a believer, the less you should sin. The more holy your life should look and should be. You should be growing in Jesus Christ. You should know the Bible more. Your life should reflect that slowly over the course of the time. But on this side of glory, we will never fully be completely sinless. So there's a part of our identity that we must recognize is we are sinners. 
We can't pass this off on other people. It's our heart. It's our issue. It's our stain. It's our sin that's taking place there. But just like Paul says for the Corinthians who have some serious issues that they're dealing with and some serious things that are taking place, at the same time you and I are sinners, if we're believers in Jesus Christ, we're covered by the grace of his gospel. That we can be sinners and we can be saints only because of Jesus Christ. That God can look at us and he can see His Son, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, who dies on the cross to bear the wrath of sin that you and I deserve and can impute to us, credit us with His righteousness. So at the same time that we are inherently sinners, we're saints. Not perfect. Good night, not perfect. But we're growing. And much like the Corinthians, we need to seek out advice. We need to seek out help. We need to continue to challenge one another to grow. And that's what we'll see in this letter that Paul writes. Is it's, it is a hard letter. It is a letter where Paul is upset at the church. And we will see that come through in the text. But what we'll also see is there is a heart there. That it's not Paul saying, get your acts together. And when you get it together, you can come to me. It's Paul saying, I love you too much to let you continue down this path. Let me guide you as an apostle. Let me guide you as a father. Let's grow in Jesus Christ together. So this morning, I don't know where your lives are at, and I don't know the things you've been dealing with. I don't know most of your pasts beyond the last few years. I don't know what you're wrestling with behind closed doors, but here's what I do know. Jesus is enough. That the gospel is enough that there is grace and that there is mercy there for the worst of us. We cannot out the love of Jesus Christ. And so if you're an unbeliever, if you've never repented and you've never turned to Jesus and you have never believed in Jesus Christ, my encouragement to you today is we start 1 Corinthians. Right? We're just barely touching our finger to the water on 1 Corinthians. We'll dive more into it next week as we get there. But I want to set the context. I want you to see who Paul is writing to because it's important. He's writing to us. It's right to you, to me. That if you're an unbeliever, there is hope. There is grace. There is mercy. There is forgiveness. There is love. Repent and turn to Jesus. It's that simple. If we're believers, or for the believers that are here, I don't know where your life's at. I don't know what you've been dealing with. But you, I don't know any of those things. All I know is that in our lives, we tend to go in waves, don't we? Times we're close to the Lord, times we're far away from the Lord. Times we're close to the Lord, times we're far away from the Lord. Wherever you're at. I've been reading on the, the, the prodigal son and the story of the prodigal son who, who's still a son, even when he's off wallowing in the pig pens. He's still a son. Maybe that's you running from the Lord, fleeing from God, not doing the things that a son, that a daughter of God would do. Listen, there's grace and there's mercy and there's forgiveness in the gospel of Jesus. He's better. Everything else will leave us empty. Everything else will leave us unfulfilled. Everything else will leave us incomplete, but the gospel of Jesus will not. Come back to Christ. Come back to the Lord. Maybe you got it together. Maybe it's a high point in your life and your spiritual stuff's phenomenal. 
praise the Lord for that point in your life. Keep on the path. Keep growing in the gospel of Jesus. Wherever you're at, whatever you're doing, our goal, my goal when I come here, when I preach, when I pray through our membership role, when I do all of those things, my goal is that whoever encounters our church would walk away knowing just a little bit more about Jesus no matter where they're at in their life. Let's pray this morning that that would be you. As as I pray and as Tanner comes up and leads us in worship, Wherever you're at in your life, if you're an unbeliever, that you would repent and that you would turn to Jesus. If you're a believer, that you'd be sanctified and that you would grow in Christ a little bit more as we look at this book just filled with sinners and one great Savior that we're going to turn to. Let's pray. God, thank you for Jesus. I thank you for the finished work of the cross. God, I thank you that there's no work we do. That your grace is not a grace that's dependent on me. Your grace is not a grace that's dependent on our acts or our ability to follow your law and to follow those things. God, your grace is dependent on you. And you save us, Father, even the worst of us. Not because we deserve it. But because you love us in ways that I don't understand. God, you take us as sinners and you turn us into saints. Saints who don't have it all figured out. Saints who still continue to sin. Saints who still wrestle with the flesh and wrestle with the the world around us. But saints nonetheless. Help us to grow in you this morning. As we sing a song and we worship you, I pray that you would challenge our hearts, that you'd soften us, shape us, and mold us for you. Help us to make much of Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll worship.